0: I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome to CounterCurrents Radio. We are back with another one of our weekly streams. I am joined today by Pox Populi. Pox, welcome back. Hello. Good to be here. And I'm also speaking with David Zutty of the Homeland Institute. David, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, it's great to be here.
0: So we are going to talk a bit about the great interview, the interview between Vladimir Putin And Tucker Carlson. Uh, There was a great deal of controversy in the lead up to this. All the libs on Twitter were telling us what we had to think about this well in advance. They were saying that Tucker is a traitor. It's like interviewing Hitler. Uh, He should be barred from the EU, he should be barred from returning to the United States. Suddenly, borders have meaning when it comes to people who have the wrong ideas, as we all know. And it was it was pretty entertaining, actually. You, you've got to laugh at this stuff, or it'll just drive you mad. And and it was also it was almost making me sympathize with Putin and and Tucker, even though, frankly, I, I think Tucker's takes on what's going on in Russia and the people he's platformed, like this ridiculous Douglas McGregor guy, they're all bad. They're all bad. He's wrong on this. My particular take on this is that. Basically, for people like Tucker Carlson, the Ukraine war is just a proxy war against the neocons that they're fighting. They're fighting a proxy war against the neocons, and the facts of the matter about what's happening in Russia don't really matter. They're just taking a pro-Russian stance because it's the anti-neocon stance, and of course, they're also trying to own the, the Dems. But you know, the, the, the low-level version of it is owning the Dems. A higher level version of it. The 2D chess version is owning the neocons. And I just think that that's the wrong way of looking at this. You're basically allowing your enemies to tell you who your friends are, which is always a mistake. And that the proper, the proper position for people on the right is to be pro-Ukrainian, honestly. But the fact that he was getting so much pushback and so much hysteria in the run-up to this was making me very sympathetic to this. So I, I'm glad it happened in the end. And I asked both both of you gentlemen to share your thoughts about it at CounterCurrents. And there were articles published yesterday on this. And I thought it would be nice to have a three-way conversation about this. We might have some other people drop in in the second hour and expand the conversation. But I guess that I just want to begin with the question Gentlemen, do you think this was a win or a lose, uh, first of all, for Vladimir Putin? Pox, do you want to go first?
2: Well, I thought it was an underwhelming interview. I think that is a consensus amongst a large part of the reactosphere that it was kind of a, is that it? type of reaction, especially given all the hype that preceded it. I thought it was kind of a... A bit of a waste of two hours of my life (laughs) watching this interview. Nothing especially insightful was said. Um, At the beginning, Tucker Carlson, before they jumped to the interview, Tucker, Tucker Carlson made a little introduction to set the stage. And he said that he and his team thought that the 30 minute to arguably even full hour long history lesson that Putin gave at the time of the interview, they thought it was a a filibustering tactic, um, and you can see why because Tucker was barely able to get any questions in, and so one half more or less of the two-hour interview was kind of pointless. Um, and I don't say that because I'm a I'm a dumb uh, modern you know American with no appreciation for history. I just live in the present. No, I, I find history fascinating. I think the history of Russia is fascinating. It's obviously influential, highly influential, the history of Russia, but it was a bit much. Um, and, you know, there was even a point where Tucker Carlson had to ask, like, like sorry, uh, what time period are we in? I'm lost. And Putin says, oh, we're in the 13th century. <laughs> you know, only, only 700 or so years to go. Just bear with me. You know, and yeah. the conversation really should have been brought back on track. We want to talk about some things that are happening in the 21st century. It's not because we're obsessed with the present and we have no sense of history, but it's because there are there are more pertinent things going on right now than, you know, whoever was ruling uh, Rus in 962 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, some people are admiring his knowledge of the history of his country and comparing that with the class of leadership we have. And that's fine. I think we should mock our leaders at any opportunity and compare their failures and their failings as leaders uh, with other leaders in the world who are doing a better job, perhaps, uh, depending on your perspective. I think we should do that as often as possible, but I don't think Putin came off very well um, in my opinion. And again, everyone has their own opinions, but in my opinion, there were only two really, meaningful revelations
0: or let's let's go to those get to those later Um, okay yeah let's bring David in so for your initial reaction David do you think uh, this was an impressive victory for Putin or loss or just meh
1: I think it was a very minor net positive for Putin and that's almost by accident I don't know where this it's this is like trying to analyze the Soviet Union all over again. The decision making is opaque. And like I argue, argued in my article, I think a lot of that is because Russia is at some level an alien civilization. They're still white, but they're not part of the Western culture. And I'm not you know trying to de-white them or anything, but it's like how Romans and Germans in one hundred BC would have would have had difficulty understanding each other, even though they're both both obviously white and European. And, and we're just trying to, there is a huge cr- cultural gap here. I was a military intelligence uh, analyst as a linguist. And I learned Spanish. And I can tell you that knowing the language is not enough. You have to know the culture. Or you, you make all sorts of mistakes. Sometimes they're funny, but you just don't get it. Stuff goes past you and you can't really communicate. And that definitely came across here. Uh I don't know why. I I think part of it might have been a bit of jujitsu on Putin's part, because in the run-up, there is this out-of-control hysteria about how this was propaganda, he's helping the enemy, which is nonsense. The left interviews edgy people all the time, and nobody cries about it. But I think possibly Putin decided to maybe not do stuff that could be construed as propaganda and keep it as professional. I would not say professional, but kind of keep it as possible. To make them look stupid, to basically pull the rug out from under them and make this look hilarious. But I think the people who did lose Big We were the people who kind of idolized Putin as this guy who's going to come on a white polar bear to save us. They lost completely because it became very apparent that Putin either does not care about them or takes their support for granted.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's true. My My impression, and I did not watch the whole thing, I found it boring. And I just had too much other work to do. At a certain point, I just started thinking, well, let's look at the highlights here. He seemed out of touch. The whole thing seemed out of touch to me. I think it was a failure on his part. It's a win only by comparison to Biden's doddering behavior at the very same time at this press conference, which we'll come to later on. But there was a propaganda line Crafted in the Kremlin, you saw it in Russia today, you saw it on platforms like the UNS Review, you saw it coming out of the mouths of people uh, like neo-Nazis in America, neo-Nazis making the neo-Nazi case for denazifying Ukraine. You saw it platformed on Tucker with Douglas McGregor and Scott Ritter. You saw it in platforms like, well, libertarian type platforms even, uh, lourockwell.com they were putting forward a case for basically sympathizing with Putin. And it had to do with things like, oh, they promised never to expand NATO and they they broke their promise. There were going to be nuclear weapons on the border. This was just like the Cuban Missile Crisis. The United States would never stand for anything like this. The United States launched a coup in 2014. And all of these provocations the ge- genocide in the donbass all these things were very effective at hornswoggling uh, people on the right into being pro putin and, and all the all the memes right they they really did put out some great memes over the years but none of that was really name checked here all of the things that that earnest russian defenders defenders of russia in the West, on the right, we're talking about, I didn't hear them. I I heard simply a revanchist case. You know, I heard the argument that it's not a real country. It's our territory. They're not a real people. They're all a bunch of Nazis if they disagree with us. Basically, I heard him saying the stuff that I said two years ago, almost, when this war started was the real reason that this happened and and not all this rubbish that we were told by E. Michael Jones and others was the real reason. This was a global crusade against transsexualism or some nonsense like that. So I I thought this was a strange performance on his part because his own people had softened up the right in, in the West for a message from him. And if he had eloquently made that case himself, I think they'd be rolling on their backs and purring and, and extremely excited by this, but he didn't really do that. And, and I thought that was fascinating. It's like he didn't pay any attention to the propaganda that was going out of Russia to people like Tucker Carlson. He didn't do any homework or he, he why? Because he didn't care. Maybe, uh, But or he didn't think it was necessary. Uh, I don't know, but it was just a strange failure on his part to make a case that had already been outlined and that was already effective. And it's very important that this case was made for Russian geopolitical interests because it has softened up support for Ukraine on the right. The Republicans are trying to block Ukraine support, and a lot of that has to do with the effectiveness of this propaganda line. So this could have been a major victory for him. He could have spiked the ball in the end zone here. The eyes of the world were watching him because the left, because the Streisand effect, basically the left was making sure that this was going to be one of the most watched interviews ever. I, I just don't think it's plausible that he, he decided to be boring to make these leftists look silly. I mean, why would he care about owning the libs on Twitter? in America when he could really put a lock on a very impressive campaign of subversion that we've seen unfolding over the past 2 years targeting people like Tucker Carlson why was he arrogant to tucker carlson shouldn't he be treating tucker carlson in an affable way tucker carlson is, has tucker carlson has expended social capital to, to let him make his case. And this, this fat fuck just acts arrogant and ungrateful. So I, I just think it was an extremely bad performance on his part, a a very puzzling performance and uh, an inept performance. And so I, I think it was a a major failure, uh, personally guys, am I going too far on this?
2: Well, you know, the first impression is always the most important one. And right from the start of the interview we immediately got a very bad tone like you said he he takes he makes this slight dig at tucker carlson immediately like the yeah. very first question and he says are we going to have a serious conversation we're we going to have some you know silly american chat show uh you know type of thing um immediately and then right after that he launches into the hour-long history lesson yeah and so the first impression, everyone's everyone's settling down, you know, popcorn ready, uh, to watch the interview of the century, I suppose, you know, with the villain of the 21st century, if that's what yeah. you're is, Hitler. Or yeah, with Vladolf uh putler or if you're other if you have the other perspective, with you know the the, the man who's going to save the world from uh liberalism. Um, uh, you know corrupt western leaders and things like that and i think everyone pretty much everyone would have been disappointed with this if you expected uh an entertaining and uh, you know relevatory and spicy interview you would have been disappointed and i laughed at giver hofstad for example and cnn who after the interview are clutching their pearls about how this is how democracy dies because of this yeah. interview. It's like... Because eat. of freedom of
0: speech, yes. yes. Spin it,
2: man. Spin this interview. Don't be so catastrophic. Spin the interview. Putin came off quite poorly. Nothing very, um, you know, scandalous was said, except for things that we'll get to later. In my opinion, only two. And, um, you know, like you said, the Putin kind of made the case. I think, again... Uh, The only only people who would not be disappointed with this are those who have been saying for years that Putin is not interested in saving Western civilization from the transsexuals and the loony left. He has his own interests. And he apparently wasn't even entirely motivated by NATO expansion, but more by Russian imperialism, and like you said, revanchism, and just wanting territory back that he thinks belongs to Russia. I'm probably the most neutral of, well, certainly compared to you, uh, Dr. Johnson, I don't know about David, but I, as a neutral, could sympathize with that. And especially if it's true that the people living in these areas of Eastern Ukraine feel Russian and want to be a part of Russia, you know, I can understand that motivation. But then Putin even goes a step further and says, well, it's also because I want to denazify Ukraine. That's the other motivation. Yeah. So he says, you know, it's okay if they feel like they're a separate people and they want to be an independent country. That's fine. But they can't do it in the mindset of Nazi ideology. So that's, that's a no-no. That requires a Russian military intervention. So people like yourself, like you, Greg, um, others who have been saying... and. You know, one thing that I've been saying from the start, even though I am sort of like on a neutral position, one thing I've always said from the start was I I just don't buy this idea that Russia uh, that Putin is some based Christian trad savior and that he's gonna he's gonna save the white race and the world from you know corrupt globalist uh, satanic cabalist transgender types I, I'm not buying it, and so again I think people who've been making that case and have been maintaining that position. Will be the only one satisfied with this interview, or or just not disappointed with it? Everyone it else, I think, is walking away disappointed. Like
0: yeah, it helps yeah. critics of Putin like me. Uh, it undermines people on the right who idolize Putin. I, I think that this was a a failure on his part. I think it was a self defeating move on his part. Yeah. And I'm rubbing my hands together in glee,
2: honestly. <laughs> Another thing too was that people were saying, you know. This would be the interview that breaks the mainstream media, was the final nail in the coffin. This will be the interview that prevents World War III, because we're going to hear a case for peace. We're going to hear about how um, Putin has tried to uh, negotiate peace in the past and NATO blocked it, and Tucker Carlson is there ostensibly trying to foment peace and understanding between two superpowers that, like David said, don't really seem to get one another they don't want they don't understand one another and it's a shame because there aren't there are there are differences but you know russia and the united states russia and the west could be friends russia could and is a huge part of western and european history um so all this animosity could be could be lessened but even those people i think will walk away disappointed because. Again, half the interview was just this history lesson kind of rambling. Okay, yeah, he has a lot of dates and a lot of names and a lot of facts. Uh, okay, this encyclopedic memory. Apparently, though, it was quite performative. Um, apparently, Putin does this often. This isn't like a some special <laughs> performance that he saved for Tucker's audience. He does this frequently, this long-winded history lesson. Yeah. Um. So he probably has this memorized by now. But uh, there was nothing about, you know let's let's prevent world war 3 uh here's here's the case listen to us please i'm not this evil guy blah
0: blah blah i don't know it just like you said it was it was it was strange yeah he it underscored how alien russia is to us uh it which was not what he should have tried to do uh the guy seemed like he was from another planet and that was a failure it's a failure of demo- of diplomacy. It's a failure of communication. And people can say, well, Americans are just dumb people who don't like history. No, I'm not a dumb person who doesn't like history. David is not a dumb person who doesn't like history. And I still think that it was a mistake. And I, I've i started fast forwarding, <laughs> trying to get to you know, where, where they could have an interchange because I know all this stuff. And I just think it was a failure from the point of view of communications, especially communications with Americans. And it's not just because Americans are dumb and need to be babied. It's because he needs to actually communicate with Americans who are predisposed to like him because he does need to have friends in the West. There's somebody in the chat saying he doesn't need friends in the West. That's just dumb. Uh, If you have enemies the way that you win out against your enemies is to have more friends and fewer enemies. And that, and that's simply how it works. If he has more friends in the West, that means he has fewer enemies in the West. That means he has to fight less hard to keep the things that he has and to gain things that he wants. That's just elementary reality. And uh, he, he needs more friends in the West. And I think that he, didn't accomplish that. In fact, he did the opposite of that. I think that he burned a lot of his friends in the West in this interview. David, what are your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah. So I think going back to the huge cultural divide, I I wouldn't be surprised if in Russia, there's some sort of thing like the macho man in the Hispanic culture, where it's all about throwing your weight around, being big. And I think that was like an extreme case of this where Putin, this is, he decided to, to take what should have been a foreign interview and made a domestic one where basically in front of his people, he said, I am so big and strong. I can flex on this stupid American. They can send their best newscaster all the way to Russia, and I will make fun of him. And that's how big I am. I'm the big chief. I'm the big macho man or whatever they call it in Russia. And I'm the big bear. And it was his own people. And shore himself up. And I think also he might, I can, to some extent, too, he probably is an autist. This came across, I've heard rumors that he actually spectrum because I don't know, like running around shirtless sometimes, other things. It, this might be a thing that he sometimes leaders get weird quirks, but even if he does, is fully autistic, he should have somebody who tells look, put it and don't blow this opportunity be a statesman, you're dealing with the normies and normie Americans at that. I I do think he did manage to make American Western leaders look completely stupid though, because that was part of the flex both. I mean, he did get a small victory from the jaws of defeat simply by flexing on the West and indulging, whatever this was, it was Russian machismo, autism, arrogance. I don't know what it is. Maybe overdoing the jujitsu play to not make this seem like quote propaganda, but it did illustrate how stupid Western leaders are. There, nobody can talk about history at any length unless it's simply complaining, you know, playing the victim Olympics about how Black people were oppressed this one time, the Civil Rights Movement. Nothing about history, really deep. Definitely not not anything before 250 years. That is purely accidental, I think, even though it was a very strong point. And in a way, I am I am happy Putin made that point. I'm very much a realist, so I hate the game. I don't hate the player. But if Putin is going to play hardball like this, and we should also play hardball. You know, he decided to play hardball, hardball by invading Ukraine, so Crimea river. He he deserves everything he gets, and if he makes a fool of, fool of himself, he deserves it. But also going back to the person in chat saying that he doesn't, you know, need this, need our support. I really want to hammer home so much he does not care about the Russia shills. He does not like you. For example, you have a lot of people who throughout the ages have made, you know, really, really sucked up to the Russia side. And I get it. We're all desperate for someone to come save us. Our times are desperate. It's not unheard of to look for foreign help when you're in a bad position. That can backfire, though. Like part of the reason why Hungary felt the Turks is that they were doing the Austrians. The Turks just kind of snuck in and took over. That's a story from another day. I'm not going to go on a Putin expo- exposition here about that. But it's it's calmly done and oftentimes backfires, but it's not unheard of. And all these people who really, really go pro-Russia, if he liked you, why hasn't he sent you any money, even, anon- even anonymously? He simply either does not care about you. About these people, these so these edgy dissident people looking for the latest hot take and why Putin is wonderful he's going to conquer the the hard West. Uh, I'll just say this: if he he could have easily look, NJP and TRS fell apart in large part due to fighting over money. So they obviously were not getting any anonymous donations, snuck you know anonymous tips from the Kremlin. He does not like you, and he has other options to go to to like Fuentes. Maybe he the Kremlin isn't super chatting Fuentes and though Fuentes claims to have a lot of money, he simply does not need these people. He disrespects them. Like he disrespects Tucker. He doesn't understand it maybe because this is an alien culture to him, but regardless, like he, he is not these people's friend. In fact, and there is a reason for this. We are dangerous. If we were to take power, we would revolutionize America. We would reindustrialize. We get rid of the decadent culture. We would be stumped, and America would become stronger. And think what Trump says, make America great again. That is a Russian nightmare. Russia wants to play on easy mode against another superpower that is weak and decaying, but doesn't fully collapse. Now, if we collapse, there's chaos, that's dangerous because you don't know exactly what's going to happen. But he would like a, a country in a slow, managed decline that cannot fight back. MAGA and definitely us – would make America a threat again. And even if we are more amenable to diplomacy than the current establishment, it's, it's do you want to take the risk? We're, we might be better to play with, we might be worse. But with the current establishment, they, even though they will definitely hate Russia because ideological reasons as opposed to racial or nationalistic or cultural or simply power reasons, they're also easy to deal with because they're so stupid and incompetent.
2: I'll say one thing. I, I do think he did try to appeal to Tucker's audience um, when he was going on about the denazification. And again, he had a very long-winded setup to that topic. But when he when he got to it, he used it as an example of how Ukraine is rife with Nazis and the West, too, is ruled by crypto Nazis from the shadows. You know, he sounded like an Alex Jones fan, um, or Alex Jones himself. But yeah. I do think that even if he is sincere in this belief, there is also an element of him playing this up to the sort of MAGA hat wearing boomer conservative, um, American and also you know, the bulldog nationalist uh, in Britain. Right. And and just any of the, the, you know, the huge, vast quantity of people who believe the Nuremberg narrative and the Steven Spielberg version of history. And mm-hmm. when he cited Yaroslav Hunka and the reception he was given in the Canadian House of Commons as evidence of this secret cabal of Nazis who rule Ukraine and rule the West, I mean... I rolled my eyes. I nearly palmed because I wrote a two-part essay. I think I wrote nearly ten thousand words on this thing that happened in Canada with Yaroslav Hunka, a ninety-year-old World War II veteran who simply fought against Bolshevik invaders, and he had every right to. Yeah. But you know, he is a neo, He's a he's a Nazi. Ukrainians are Nazis, therefore, and Canada huh, is a Nazi state, therefore, too. I mean, it was it was low IQ tier uh stuff that we heard from you know the 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 boomer right they're not all boomers many of them are not boomers but i guess it's just being lumped in under that you know under that term um but i think there is an element of that i think there is an element of vladimir putin playing this up you know the the world asks why did you do it vladimir why did you invade ukraine and he says well i'm i'm fighting the nazis don't you want me to fight the nazis and that's yeah. sort of like a, a justification, and and that's he has actually played this up um, in such a way that even if he's being sincere, I think there is an element of calculated intent here as well, because it's be, it's because of that, it's because of playing this up. I'm fighting Nazis in Ukraine, that you've got the Jimmy Dore types, the MAGA types, um, and so many others to take his side. And say, yeah, base Putin, way to go, Putin. He's fighting the Nazis. And look at our, you know, you get the Jimmy Dore type of person who's finally seeing that the West is ruled by corrupt traitors, But he's 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 seeing that because of the wrong reasons, or he's making the wrong conclusions. Because now yeah. he and types like him are saying, oh, yes, the West is full of corrupt leaders because they're pro-Nazi. <laughs> you know, they're, yeah. they're, they're supporting Nazis in Ukraine. No, that's not why they're corrupt and traitorous. Um, but Putin has managed to convince a hell of a lot of people in the West that that is what he's doing and that it's a good thing. And that's why we should take Putin's side. So I do think there was an element of him trying to appeal to Tucker's audience or a Western audience when he plays that up. Um, but for for me, it just it just really makes me roll my eyes. And I also don't see much difference between him... You know, it's, it's it's as equally hypocritical what he does and what, for example, United States and Britain do. When the United States goes around bombing democracy on people, whether they want it or not, when they, you know, say to Libya, okay, you can be a sovereign nation, but not that way. No, no, right. no, no African currency for you. Get back on the dollar. You can't make that decision. And now we're going to bomb you. Well, I, I'm failing to see much difference. And when Putin says to Ukraine, okay, you can be a separate people, you can have your independent country, but not that way, not that way. And I'm going to justify my special military operation by calling you all Nazis. When really, I just think he doesn't like nationalism. And that's why a lot of people on the West, uh, you know, European nationalists, Americans, who have taken the Putin side, make me kind of roll my eyes too, because it's like, like you've been saying, David, Putin's not on your side. Um, and it just, because we live in this idiocracy age, um, you know, n- nuanced opinions, opinions that don't reduce everything to black and white, good guys versus bad guys. Like it's some fucking star Wars film. Uh, you know, I have people who call me a zigger and then I have people who call me, uh, ukro Nat or whatever it's, whatever the derogatory term is. Um, because you can't just analyze this objectively. You end Mm -hmm. up having, they they place you in in, in one of the sides and say, oh, you're on this guy's side, or no, you're on this guy's side. Um, I'm on my own side. I'm on the third position. I'm on the side of nationalism, of nationalists, and I want what's best for uh, my folk, European folk. Um, And that's why I want nationalist leaders who won't get swept up in these wars. And I think Putin did kind of let the cat out of the bag and implied that he wants a sort of civic nationalist globalism, but just his version of it. Uh, yeah. with, I guess, you know, extra vodka and fewer rainbow flags. But yeah. that's it, you know? Yeah, uh, it's, I'd probably be in very big trouble in Russia as a nationalist.
0: Um, oh, you absolutely would be in big trouble. You would be in big trouble if you advocated for the interests of the Russian people in Russia, that would get you gulagged. So yeah, one thing I want to say in response to what David said and what, and also what you said is that there is actual evidence that money was funneled from Putin's Russia to black nationalist groups in, in America. I forget the name of the group, but people have, Been put on trial. There have been charges. There have been no charges of Putin funneling money to white nationalist groups in America. Although there are plenty of white nationalists who are basically panting for that and we're hoping for that to happen, but I don't think there's been any objective evidence that that actually took place. And I would imagine that if the feds had evidence of that, they would they would use that. They would use that against organizations. The, the most plausible evidence is that, well, yes, NJP got to use a barn owned by this Bausman character who is being funded by this guy, Konstantin Malofiev, who is also the guy who funds Dugan, very much involved in you know, deep state Russian geopolitics. Okay, that's the, that's the best case that can be made. The favors were exchanged, right? It's, and it's circumstantial.
1: The Kremlin, who took them serious at all. They'd be getting a little bit more than a barn, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And 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 the point is this. You see in Soviet propaganda, you see in contemporary Russian propaganda, you see in Iranian propaganda. What do they always push? They push radical egalitarianism in America. Why are all the black people being oppressed in your country? Why is George why was George Floyd martyred? Shouldn't you intensify your self-loathing and cater more to the black and brown people? That's what they push. Why do they push that? Because it weakens us. And they know that it weakens us. They would not aid any groups on the right, even c- complete clown show groups on the right that are completely. Un, you know, vanishingly small chance, groups with a vanishingly small chance of actually making America great or strong again, they still wouldn't help groups like that on the off chance that they would actually make America stronger. Uh, they don't want to make America stronger. They don't want to make white America stronger. Uh, they want, like you said, they want America weak. Uh, they would like America full chaotic, and weak even if it's run by truculent dumb dumb liberal types who are constantly trying to lecture the them and the Chinese and other people about human rights and stuff like that they would much rather have that than a strong america and so it's just silly to think that they're going to help nationalists the only reason they'd help nationalists is is if they thought you were so inept that you would actually harm America's interests. And there are plenty of nationalists, I guess, who fit that description, but they're not even going to help them on the off chance that they might luck out and accidentally make America stronger. They don't want Americans or white people anywhere in the West or in other countries to be stronger. And the, the most eloquent proof of this, I think, comes from looking at Russia today. Russia Today is propaganda directed to the outside. Okay, during COVID, Russia Today was pushing COVID skepticism for the West while Russia was going full lockdown and full vax. Why were they doing that? Uh, They obviously thought that full lockdown and full vax was good for Russia, and they were pushing these ideas because they thought they were bad for the West. Russia Today will published stuff uh, in English, directed at Americans, criticizing transsexualism. Russia Today, in Portuguese or Spanish, directed at countries in South America, runs sob stories about how terribly depressed and alienated would-be trannies are and how society needs to cater to them so they won't cry, so they won't be sad. What what explains that? What explains that is they are pushing things that they think will make other societies around the world more con- conflict, you know, more conflicted and weaker. Uh, and that's frankly just the behavior of what you could call a cancer on the planet. Uh, they are trying to push diametrically opposed ideas and policies in different places in the world with the common goal of increasing conflict in these societies and making them weaker and unhappier. And they think that that benefits them. So I just don't think that uh, if you are a sincere nationalist, you have anything to expect from Russians. And if the Russians wanted to support you, well, I would take that as a sign that maybe they think you're a dumb fuck and a a liability to the cause. Yeah.
1: I'd also add in that there's a, hard power issue here where Russia from the Cold War has all these legacy alliances that they're entangled in with the third world and brown, random brown people. For example, Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, these are all places where they have their little finger in there to some extent or another, and these are places that could it, potentially host weapon systems, uh, harass us in this hemisphere, and they also, of course, have Africa, the, uh, the Wagner group. So they're just completely enmeshed with the third world. So to fully embrace white nationalism and the third world, maybe that's doable, but why, why try? You might, it's, it, at some point, you are talking. I know they are talking on both sides of their mouth right now, as you said, with Russia today. But at some extent, why take a gamble on white nationalism that could alienate these people who you know are allies and you know what type of alliance you have you know what to expect from them? It, it just doesn't make geopolitical sense. I know you don't like the word geopolitics, but it cuts both ways. There's a geopolitical reason why Russia is going to oppose Ameri- white people in America. They're not friends. They're, they, these things are real, and they're not going away. Russia is not going to trash or risk trashing a relationship with Venezuela on a whim, or Cuba, which is a unsinkable aircraft carrier off of Florida. That makes no sense. Also it's there's this broader issue going on here where the West always puts ideology first. And usually we think the left does. It's like they're going to sacrifice the race to achieve the John Lennon song about imagine all the people or all this stuff. The, the right does it too a little bit where they want to, you know, paint the paint the world their color of ideology like it's a paradox map game. But other people, but especially Russia and Putin, they think in terms of power and it, and in for them, ideology serves power. For us, race, power, ideolo- they all serve ideology. So that's another huge issue where we don't understand each other and there's going to be clashes and all that. And another thing also is that the the boomerisms with, with Alex Jones, it shows that he might be trying to sabotage funding for Ukraine, but he doesn't care about. I, I just thought that was weird because he could possibly sabotage funding but also alienating people that would fight the war because the boomers, the Alex Jones crowd, these aren't the people who would be resisting a draft. And I thought that this was this is very surprising me because I thought Putin could do this thing where, due to the current, due to how people see Israel as a white colonial power, erroneously, very incorrectly, all the leftists in America would, if there is a if there is a global conflict, it's likely that both involve the the. Iran slash Israel and Palestine and Russia, even if Russia was simply doing propaganda work. So the the Palestinian kind of Muslim side could hit the left with anti-colonial propaganda, third worldism, old crying brown people. Russia could hit the right wing with traditionalism and all this, and manage to alienate both sides, but Putin apparently doesn't seem, either missed this opportunity, did not see it, doesn't understand it, or discounted it as a done deal. I don't know. So it's like the Soviet Union again. He's like a mystery in a riddle wrapped up in some cringe.
0: <laughs> I like that. Um, Pox, you said that there were a couple of things in this interview that yeah. you found genuinely interesting. Do you want to talk about that a bit? I know you're going to have to leave in about 15 minutes.
2: Yeah, and I think it, it dovetails with what David was saying and what you were saying earlier about how Russia today promotes these sort of things. You know, I think Russia... Recently, um, there was a document out of China. It's quite redacted, but it was analyzed. uh, I don't know if it's recently, I think it it kind of was spoken about. It's from a few years ago, but it it made, uh, it, it caught attention again. I think Steve Saylor wrote something about this as well. And basically, it was about how the United States investigated Chinese racism, basically, and realized that China is a monoculture. And that gives them an edge and a strength. And China looks at the United States and the West in general with its multiculturalism and sees it as a huge weakness. And so I think in a competition of powers, Russia is merely identifying the weaknesses of the West, their liberalism, their um, dedication to a multicultural and pluralistic society. And they're exploiting that via propaganda, via the propaganda war. Um, so they're they're just being very Machiavellian in, in that in that sense. Um you know, but I think that again trying to be neutral and and um I, I just want this war to be over. Um I think that there are legitimate reasons for Russians and for Putin to look at the West and see. Um kind of like what you uh used the term there earlier, Greg, this cancer on the planet. Um so two things that because it's 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 all well and good to analyze Russia's motives, Putin's motives, and and debunk some of the lies. Um well, I'm perhaps being robbed and my dog is going to protect me. I don't know if you could hear that. <laughs> but anyway. Um so it's all well and good to analyze that and definitely debunk some of the, the nonsense about you know this guy on a white polar bear who's going to save us all, but it's also worth analyzing the West and its motives and what's going on here. Um, and there were two things that Putin said during the interview which I I thought were worth paying attention to. He and again, if you believe him, okay, but he said that one. Uh, Boris Johnson and his handlers went in and sabotaged peace negotiations in Istanbul. He said that he had ordered the withdrawal of uh, Russian troops from Kiev in a sign of willingness to negotiate without, you know, this threat. Uh, you know, you can't really negotiate when you're holding a gun to someone's temple. So he pulled the troops back as a sign of willingness to, to negotiate peace uh, under fair conditions, only to have the promises from the other side uh, broken. Um, and then he also mentioned that Nord Stream Pipeline 1 was not affected by whatever the hell happened there. And he implied that only the United States was capable of doing that. Um, and so Nord Stream Pipeline 1 is was not affected. It's fully functional, fully operational, but Germany won't open it there's all this Russian gas waiting to be supplied to Germany and therefore much of uh, the rest of Europe and Germany doesn't want it. And so Putin's, you know, bemused he's scratching his head and wondering what's going on here. And it made me think of the ulterior motives that the West has for this war of attrition. And you look at the way that the West has betrayed Ukraine, even with this, piecemeal support, uh, neither going all in nor just letting this conflict be regional and play itself out. Um, uh, I remember when Larry Fink said that the war in Ukraine is going to fast track the deployment of central bank, digital currencies. Um, so if the West has ulterior motives for this as well. And part of that is the sort of controlled demolition leading into the Great Reset and all these other things that, uh, you know, the the WEF crowd um, and the BlackRock types want to implement. You know, you can understand why Russians and, and dissidents in the West are looking at uh, the NATO powers and are disgusted. And that's why they've been easily... Taken in by Russia Today propaganda, but these are legitimate points. I mean, I'm, you know, where are the journalists who have gone to Boris Johnson to say, "Is that true? Did you do that? And who told you to do that? Who who told you to come up with this idea and and tell the Ukrainians not to accept this this peace negotiation and and continue the war?" Ah, uh, he wrote something in the Daily Mail and just got pilloried for it. All the comments were negative. Uh, so where is the where is the the where are the truth seekers? You know where are the journalists pushing back on Boris Johnson for that? Where are the German reporters who are going to ask their leaders what what we have a pipeline that could be open, it's fully operational, and you are refusing to open it? Our economy is in the tank. Our future uh, for energy looks bleak, and we have this potential to avoid this disaster and you're not taking it you know there are things worth asking and and um uh figuring out here and those were i think the only two real um enlightening moments of the interview that made the interview worth watching because the rest of it was like we said kind of boring and kind of rehashing you know boomer truthisms. um but i i do think that this is why i've been a neutral is just because Both sides, uh, apart from the Ukrainians themselves, who I think do, like every nation, have the right to live uh, in a nation state of their own and decide things according to their customs and their traditions and their desires, and I feel bad for them. But if the two sides are taken to be Russia and NATO, I see both as just really bad. I don't like either. And those two things that Putin mentioned... Or again, just examples of how even the West is, uh, or at least the NATO powers, um, are just very corrupt. Um, and I, I think we should ask what their motives are. Why did Boris Johnson do that, then, we should be asking.
0: Right. I, again, he could have said a lot more negative stuff about the West and NATO, though. So it, it's, it's interesting that he did say that. David, did you find any stuff in here surprising?
1: The only thing I really found surprising was just not going for the jugular, really. That and that he, the kind of over-the-top rudeness when he made fun of Tucker about being rejected from the CIA when they were discussing how the CIA blew up Nord Stream. That was, you know, part of this whole alien power flex, like, but it's, it's weird. And I think it really underscored that, you know, like you were saying, Pox, these are both bad people, but they're these Both NATO and Russia are bad options. I think going forward, a silver lining to all this is that people are going to have to realize that you cannot rely upon the United States to come help you anymore because there's just too many political issues. If the left, if you want the, someone in, say if it's a leftist administration, well, the right is going to simply trigger the left, like Greg said. Reversely it'll be the same thing. Or even if they, they don't oppose the aid or the help on ideological grounds, there will be too much drama going on within America to deal with foreign affairs. For example, could if if Trump gets into office and the left still still wants to support Ukraine because of democracy, which is not what this conflict is about, but still they they have in the head this is about democracy. They won't be able; nobody will be able to do anything because there could be BLM riots. Trump could want to make a bipartisan deal with the liberals. It just won't happen because we'll be dealing with a bunch of putting out fires here in America. And it really underscores just how Americans are, they barely know their own politics. They they, they know foreign affairs even less. The rest of the world is a meme. It's this weird they live on an island between the Atlantic and the Pacific and for only 250 years. Everything else broader beyond that is like literally outside of space and time. Might as well be traveling to an alternate dimension. And so America is not a reliable partner, which means Europe has to get strong and defend itself. It means they have to rapidly industrialize, start making the shells that they need now for war, to prevent a war. I always start, you know, should there be more citizen, you know, the government has... Sponsor groups that basically train citizens to be militiamen or partisans if they're invaded. That might be a good idea right now. Start getting the civilian forces ready to fight back to deter a war. And I think Poland is is going to – they're in a very dangerous position because Putin said that he doesn't have designs on the Baltic or Poland. No, if he thinks he could take it, why not? Poland has a, has a liberal government now, government right now, and instead of getting, despite how I assume they don't like Putin, they're shrill. I'm not familiar with Polish politics, but I assume the left and right don't like Putin is what I get from Poland. They're going to completely sabotage your country because leftists are stupid and incompetent. So they're talking about, you know, maybe having transgender troops. Okay, well, that's going to destroy your recruitment. They want immigrants that's going to demoralize people and they're a problem. And they could also just be a fifth column. Russia has all this, all these third world alliances and anti-colonialism. Well, you're allowing people in who are susceptible to Russian propaganda and are violent. That might come to bite Poland in the butt pretty soon if there's a conflict. Uh, and so it's just stupid. Like, you cannot rely upon these people. And I think... Really, Europe has to – we really need to ditch liberal democracy, as I argued in the article, because it selects bad leaders. But Europe needs to ditch America. You cannot – the world policeman is incompetent, stupid, and dealing with its own problems. It's like the sick man of NATO. Relying upon America is simply asking for more problems. America will get you into hot hot problems, get you involved in their drama, but will not be able to help you out.
0: Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I, I do think we need to start thinking in terms of, of other options besides basically the West and especially anything connected with America. Europe needs to have it go its own way. And this is why I, I've promoted since 2015 discussion of the Intermarium idea as an alternative geopolitical bloc in Central and Eastern Europe that would be able to insulate some of the most culturally and racially healthy parts of Europe from both Russia and the West, and especially the United States. I do think we need to start thinking in terms of other options. But I do think that given the forces that are engaged right now, that NATO is objectively playing a pro-white role in helping out Ukraine try and maintain its independence. So there are super chats coming in. And folks, if you would like to send us questions, go to entropystream.live forward slash countercurrents. Just leave out the hyphen. Go there, hit the green button, leave a paid chat. We would very much appreciate it. Your chats help us keep the lights on. They help us with our programming and your donations are very much appreciated. So let's actually look at a couple of chats that have been sent in. One dollar was sent on Odyssey by Dissident Echoes. Do any content creators in our thing actually say that Putin is a base savior? I feel like some of this is a straw man. I've seen people give Russia the benefit of the doubt Do to the NATO stuff, but I haven't heard anyone who actually say that Putin is our guy. Oh, come on. Yeah. Oh, come Putin on. Is, I do. Too-
2: Vincent James, Lauren Vitsky. Uh, come on. This is not, yeah. I mean, I document this tax Tube. Um, e. Michael Jones, anyone who's on the Christian nationalist meme thing, loves Putin, thinks that he's this uh, Christ pilled savior based in Trad who's going to take on the loony rainbow left and save civilization. Give me a break. Pay attention then. Like this, these people are out there, and they've repeatedly done this. But of course, with some of them, maybe they're not being sincere. Maybe it's all a meme for them too, uh, and that may be well, very well uh, well be the case. But give me a break; these people are out there, and they've been doing this for two years, if not longer.
1: People, I, 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 I there agree. There are clips of of Senor Fuentes just going, just praising Putin nonstop, like he's a god or whatever, and
2: he yeah, it's like, a and- chant of. Putin, Putin, Putin and demanded a round of applause for Russia in the latest, you know, the the last uh, AFPAC debacle, whatever the thing they did there where you know, uh, the blonde bimbo from Congress was invited. And two months later, they're at each other's throats and doxing each other and insulting each other. I don't know what, you know, the America first thing is just so full of drama. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, again. Fuentes is on stage at that thing. So can we get a round of applause for based Russia? And then the crowd starts chanting Putin. Give me a fucking break. Or, or, or maybe he was just being an ironic zoomer and it was all just for entertainment. Well, then it's even more retarded.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's like you're trying to apply irony. This isn't a video game. This is like the actual thing. This is the actual war. These are Ukrainians and Russians are white. For that reason alone, you should take this seriously because white people are killing each other. And I, I'm just tired of irony in general, but especially for something like this where it's a war. It's just, can you imagine people in World War One, or the, the Spanish Civil War treating it like a meme or a joke? It's a stupid too. Like we've seen the Telegram feed for two years now of the NJP crowd, Eric Stryker, others simply praising Russia nonstop or at least taking a very strong anti-Ukraine stance. So it, it it's you can tell that they think that Putin could come in on a polar bear and save them, but Putin doesn't even think about them at all. It's like this unrequited love. I think yeah. a lot of them right now are having a little breakup. They might need to listen to them some Taylor Swift music about breaking up because they're having a breakup <laughs> with their daddy, their 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 savior figure. And
0: But yeah, there there's there's a lot of Putin saviorism out there. It's not just a straw man that we are inventing. This is almost a hatchling type question. Uh, But maybe this person is just new to the internet. Maybe this person has just wandered into the internet and doesn't know the history here. So giving him the benefit of the doubt, we'll just say, yes, there's a huge amount of this stuff out there. And another thing that's very interesting is that on social media over the last 48 hours, and really since the since the putin speech or putin interview actually uh, aired there has been a great deal of bot like i won't call them bots they're they're just they're people who are f- furiously typing out pro russian talking points and it's as if these people have been rebooted to february of 2022 all the arguments that have been slaughtered and buried a hundred times over to the point where uh, the, the Putin people just stop making them. All of these arguments have come back. It's like it's like the end of times. Uh, it's like all the dead memes have been resurrected uh, and are are back there on the web. My tiny Twitter channel has four freshly minted pro-Russian stalkers. Uh and, and apparently some of my friends, including uh you Pox and, and also Gadius, are being stalked uh, by these same people. You yeah, look at their I, profiles I blocked
2: it today. Yeah. Just today. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I you sometimes you don't get notified if their comments are incredibly rude or profanity laden. So yeah, I don't know actually what the uh standard is, but I the, I had one of these recent creations, uh you know date of, of account creation you know december 2023 had responded to this, my article that i shared on uh on x and i didn't know about it for like 24 hours and i just saw it today and yes you know, i kind of interacted with it uh for a, a little while and then it just it's like no nah, there's no point to this uh yeah block. But yeah very yeah. very body-like behavior yeah it anyway is. i'm yeah. I am sorry i i do have to go so uh, well, it's it been great. talking to you guys. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Time. Yeah. yeah. Um, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Around.
0: Yeah. So let's continue then. Uh, we have some other questions here. Uh, so just bear with me for a second, David, and I will find them. Uh, Friedrich uh, writes in with 10 US dollars. This was from last week. He said, great show, all the best. Thank you belatedly for that. I appreciate it. ABC wrote in with 10 US dollars also from last week. I did not see this during the stream. I'm sorry. Uh, he says Socrates' trial seems to have been politically motivated due to his connection with Critias. The charges were an excuse. I think he was right, though. Not every idiot in the country, citizen or not, should have a vote in the state's affairs. But how do you choose to select few who could vote? Uh, well, this is sort of off topic now, but uh, we can revisit some of this stuff. But yes, Critias one of the 30 tyrants who was an uncle of uh, Plato was an associate of Socrates. Socrates was associated with many of the oligarchs, the, the tyrannical oligarchy of the 30 tyrants that was installed in Athens at the end of the Peloponnesian War. And uh, these people were truly bestial in their behavior and they were run out of town. A lot of them were killed. And uh, it, it is possibly... True. Well, I would say it's true that, to at least some extent, uh, Socrates' association with these people was one of the reasons why he was put on trial and killed. Okay, ABC is written in with 10 US dollars. This week, thank you very much, Putin wants a second Yalta in 1945 to decide the fate of Europe over the heads of Europeans while talking directly with the Jews and Blacks in power in Washington today. America's not just pondering, pandering to the blacks. It's a trap for any still white nation trusting them. Is this a correct assessment? Well, I'm mean, basically, this is a correct assessment. Uh, I don't know about another Yalta. Uh, I, I don't know what his end game is here. I don't know what he envisions. Yalta was at the end of a war or nearing the end of a war where the Soviet Union was allied with the West uh, fighting Germany. Uh, right now, America and the West are at daggers with Russia. So I don't know if there's going to be a Yalta, per se, where they're going to be talking about dividing up Europe like they did at the end of the Second World War. Uh, I I think that uh, if there is an end to this uh, war, there will be an end eventually. Everything ends. Uh, I don't know how it will be negotiated, uh, honestly. Uh, and Honestly, I don't know who Putin is going to talk to. He is very unlikely to be able to get a good deal out of people like Blinken. Uh, he would get a much better deal out of somebody like Trump, to be perfectly honest. And, and let's just be honest here. This war would never would have happened if Trump were still in office. Uh, the madman Trump would have deterred it. But the weakling uh Biden could not deter it. What are your thoughts on this, David?
1: So I agree, except a good deal, I would say it's a rational deal. Right now, the problem with liberal democracy, which I am constantly beating up like a pinata, is that it selects for stupid leaders, also it's finance, it creates a hive mind. So right now, who, who does Putin negotiate with? They're all shrill. They, they, If to negotiate with Putin, they would have to walk back and lose face. And that's one of the things with diplomacy, if you actually know how to do it, you've read books. I hate to say it, but you've played video games. I'm going to keep saying that because if you learn more from video games than college, there's a problem. But that's true. You don't walk it up. You don't use this hysteria unless you really are going to commit to total war, never making a treaty. Eventually, you would like to have a treaty, or at least you would like to have that option. And they can't because now they're going to look weak to their own people. It's ridiculous. So we have all again all these internal issues in the West, caught making it difficult to deal with exterior threats either through war, diplomacy, or otherwise. And, and too, like Trump, Trump would give a good deal. I think it'd be an effective deal for both sides because he would look at power, not ideology. The left makes it all about ideology, about this democracy thing, which I will deconstruct later. But it's this John Lennon version of how things should be and they cannot think rationally because Putin reminds them of Trump and that reminds them of their daddy issues and these people are too I'll be blunt they're just too mental puzzled to do the diplomacy there's no statesman to reach out to which is why Putin feels that he can do whatever he wants because he's not opposed by anyone who's a real threat or has any level of competency I also don't know if Ukraine will survive as much as I support Ukraine, I'm not one of these people. They, whoever they're rooting for, they tend to get high on their own supply belt propaganda. Ukraine's situation is very bad. They're talking about using women for troops. They have taken extensive casualties. What Russia has been doing this whole war is that they will almost encircle an enemy, but they will simply operationally encircle it, which then, which means they can bombard the supply lines. So the, Ukraine. For personal reasons, you know, personal heroism, uh, a sense that they cannot give this up, they'll send men into this meat grinder and make a heroic stand and all get killed. This happened at, it's happened at I can't pronounce it, at Vika. Several battles. And they're just, Russia right now can also outproduce shells. So they're bleeding Ukraine dry of men. And at some point, I don't see Ukraine lasting through the summer in its current form. I think Russia, at some point, the, the battle line has become too too paper thin and they're going to be able to march all the way to the to the Dniper River. At that point, Ukraine might collapse. Also, there's been a problem with Zelensky trying to fire a general who was beloved and more rational in favor for an ideologue who wants to go on the attack. And it's, it's, it's very ironic with Putin calling Ukraine Nazis because this is how Germany and the Soviet Union just you know, really tore each other up is that they felt they could not take any, a single step back on the Eastern front for political reasons. So just throw themselves at each other and make these desperate last stands instead of making tactical retreats. And if I believe it was either Manstein or Guderian, if they had had more leeway, but making strategic, you know, tactical withdrawals, they could have, I'm not saying they could have won the war, but it would have made a significant difference. Well, Ukraine's doing the same thing for political reasons. So, if Ukraine is a Nazi state, it's only in one single way is that they're they're not putting, they're putting politics ahead of strategy and having politicians walking around generals. But with this recent general being fired by Zelensky, it's going to cause instability. This general is well-liked. He could possibly depose Zelensky, which would be good because Zelensky is not, he has refused to negotiate because of his own personal politics. And this is where I get hit with mud from all sides. i may. I'm a, a NATO shill. I'm a Russia shill. I have NAFLAID little doggos attacking me on Twitter. I'm sure the other distant writers will not like me either. But at some point, Zelensky is destroying his country for his own stupidity and pride. So the best, so, but this continues. Ukraine might not exist in its current form. At which point, who they negotiate with? It, it might be a new state. I know um, Hungary, people in Hungary, Hungary and Romania have made noises about taking over lost lands. Those are a minority in, in both countries. But it, it might not exist. I mean, at some point, Zelensky may not be capable of negotiation either. I think the best thing that could happen would be a coup in, in Ukraine, where someone takes over who's more responsible than Zelensky and just looks at this is Purely power. They just come to terms. All they cannot retake a lot of this land, or basically any of it. Or if they can, it would not be worth the price in blood. Make peace and prepare for the next war, or to deter the next war. But that's a long shot. I'm not very. I'm very. I'm not. I'm very pessimistic about this.
0: Okay, we have another question here. One second. Tom has written in with ten U.S. dollars. To those who don't think that Russia has many of the same problems as the West, check out James Corbett's coverage of Putin's and Russia's conduct during the Corona hoax. I'm coming from the same place as dissident echoes in the chat, okay? Okay, $25 have come in from the rules of reality apply. Last week, you and Paul Kersey discussed why no champion of white interests has arisen. Crowns lie in gutters all across the West. What are the conditions necessary for an Alfred and his alderman to arise? The legions are willing and waiting. I, I think this is a fascinating question. I'm actually writing an essay slowly called Eternal Glory, uh, because I think it's a, an important question. Uh, and I want it out there in print, not just talked about on live streams. I think it is absolutely true that whoever turns things around for the white race. Whoever saves the white race is going to have eternal glory. This person will be revered as a godlike figure for thousands of years. Hence, as long as there are white people, this person will be revered. Why has this not been accepted? Why has this challenge not yet been accepted? The crown is lying in the gutter. It needs to be picked up. So there, there are all kinds of questions and, and issues here. Part of it is that I think Western man has been denatured; that the the motivation of glory has been almost written out of us. We we don't even think in terms of glory anymore. To the extent that we think about glory. It's usually cast in pathological terms. Chicks say, you and your male ego, right? Oh, you and your male ego, I roll, that kind of stuff. It's treated as pathological. It's treated as mere narcissism. Honor has been pathologized as narcissism. And that means that most of human history is unintelligible to people who think this way. Most of human history was not created by people who are pursuing wealth or comfort, right? Security, uh, the the bourgeois values, uh, the the risk averse values of the of the modern bourgeoisie. That is not what explains history. I'm always eye rolling at new documentaries that come out, a new documentary about the Vikings. People think that the Vikings went off to fight battles for honor, but really they were just looking for trade routes. Uh, I'm sorry. You can say that, but you're leaving out important motivations and you're just rendering history unintelligible. So uh, that's, that's part of it. The part of the soul where honor dwells, namely thumos, we don't even have an English word for that. We have to use an ancient Greek word for it, right? That's a problem. And this is a problem that was bequeathed upon us by the early modern thinkers who rewired Western man to be basically just concerned about longevity. We put long life over practically every other consideration we put comfort over practically every other consideration well if you put long life and comfort over other considerations including matters of principle matters of patriotism matters of collective survival you're basically a slave the people in power can get you to do anything to comply with their Directives. They can keep you a happy slave while your people are slowly exterminated. And that's what's going on. Uh, so I, I do think that's a problem. I do think that Western man has lost his fighting spirit. I have an essay called The European Fighting Spirits, it's a short speech that I gave in uh, Finland a few years back on this. It's at Countercurrents. It talks about this issue of Thumas. So that's, that's one issue. Okay. The other thing is that even the greatest man can't go it alone. Even the greatest man needs peers. Even the greatest man needs people behind him, people to watch his back. And we lack that solidarity. So there are plenty of people who know, for instance, about the Jewish problem. In fact, every prominent person in society knows about the Jewish problem. The higher up in society you are, the more you know about it. That means that all the CEOs, all the politicians, all the actors who aren't Jews, right? Leaving out all the leading people who are Jews, all the leading people in our society who aren't Jews know that there's a Jewish problem. They might have convinced themselves that they love these people, but they are also living in fear of them. And that's the sense in which they know there's a problem. They know that they can't be reasoned with, that they simply have to be placated, that they end up ruling us because because we're afraid to challenge them. Uh, we're, We're afraid to see how far they'll go to maintain control. And we know how far they're willing to go. So every prominent person knows this. Elon Musk Knows this. Elon Musk really knows this now that he's tried to buy Twitter, he's bought Twitter and he's tried to make it a free speech platform. He really sees who doesn't want freedom of speech in America and around the world. So what does a person like that do? Well, if he wants to go to war, if he wants to, if he wants to pick the crown up out of the gutter and pursue eternal glory. He knows, unfortunately, that all of the elites in our society that aren't Jewish know that there's a problem. They live under this oppression. And yet, none of these people will come to his side. Why? Well, because they're inveterately individualistic. They will look at this as a gaffe. They will look at him telling the truth and being brave and think, how can I bring this guy down for my own personal benefit? even though he is telling the truth and is being brave. And that's, that's the contemptible cloth that our elites are made of right now. They would tear down a person who is trying to pick the crown up out of the gutter and trying to save the world, basically, because of their own petty interests. because they can slither up a little bit further on the greasy pole of this genocidal anti-white system. That's that's what you have to look forward to. This is why it took somebody as crazy as Kanye West amongst America's billionaires to talk about this stuff. He didn't talk about it very articulately, but he did talk about it. And he was promptly removed from the billionaire club. And all these people who, you know, pandering to Kanye, pandering to blacks, who wanted to get pictures taken with Kanye West because he's a... You know he's a big artist, right? He's a popular figure. All these people, and I, I bet that includes Elon Musk. It certainly includes our, our former president. All these people were intensely embarrassed by this, but fortunately, there were so many of them who were compromised by this that I don't think it, they they could really use it to one up one another. So yeah, th- there there are problems. There are definitely problems. We don't understand the motives of a person who wants to pursue eternal glory. And if some person lacking that vocabulary, lacking that psychology, some person who's been brought up to be a modern bourgeois individualist should think of such thoughts. If he's smart, if he's not insane, he's going to game it out a little bit. And he's going to know that if he makes the if he makes the wrong move, that he will be brought low by other people in his own class who might think he's entirely right and even admire him for being brave. But there's no credit given for those virtues, sadly. Yet I think this will change. It has to change by well, re-educating people about. Their motivations about human psychology, if you will, uh, that's part of it. And it, it things have to get worse, and we have to uh, we have to encourage people to well, literally encourage people. We have to infuse courage in people who see the truth and might want to make a stand. And when when that time happens, people have to come to their aid. How many prominent people have come to the aid of Elon Musk? And, and how many prominent people have stood up and told the ADL to back down and leave our boy, Elon, alone? I, I can't think of any really prominent people who have done that. And he's ta- definitely taken note of that. So, David, what are your thoughts on this question? It's a huge question.
1: Yeah. So, I think part of it is that at some point, people need to be, become more afraid of what will happen if they do not act than afraid of, of what will happen if they do act. And the regime is going to change this balance of terror. A lot of these people are paralyzed. Private greed, but it's also fear about losing everything because the regime has gone after Donald Trump, of all people. And two, I do think we need to have a rogue elites to change this. Like you said, the legions are ready. The legions are ready, but there's no officers to lead the legions. And part of it is, is that the American right is completely unprofessional. Whether it's dissident or mainstream, It's it's a clown show. We have... For example, after January 6th, people turned on January 6th initially, so it's a bad thing. They took all these liberal talking points. I, I look at the right, and I'm just like kind of embarrassed, and at some point, they need to clean up their act because, say, if you were a rogue elite who might want to help Elon, and you're seeing this, you would say there's no safety net. You know, your people won't—the people, either other rogue—not just rogue elites like you said, but the common people or— distant right, they, they won't have your back. The distant right is a clown show for the most part. So do you even want their help? So at some point we need to become more professional in the distant right. We need to focus on radicalizing the center right. And also this whole like, a lot of this does come down to a bourgeois mindset and a lot of this does overlap with boomerism. So at some point history just needs to work itself out and people, things need to get worse before they get better. There needs to be a new generation the balance of terror between action and not action needs to change, and really, re- part of the reason why we need to get more professionals because what we perceive as racial treason is actually class loyalty. Because these people say, "Like, I don't want to be associated with these people. They're crazy. They're people like, you know, t- I admire Tucker Carlson, but he's done some weird stuff. There's Alex Jones. So if we have, if we make right wing stuff respectable and stuffy, not immature and stupid either. That will probably induce more elite support. They'll feel like we're a reliable partner. We're asking people to take a leap of faith, and it's into an abyss of this edginess, memes, post-irony, bourgeois consumerism, and that means we have to become both professional and revolutionary. And that's a process, but I think we're on the right path, and I've been reading a lot of Yaki re, re, lately, and he talks about how if the rolled feeling wants to have, do something, it's going to do it. And eventually it will pick people and select people to make its, its thing happen. It's very metaphysical. Uh, citation needed Yaki's dreams, apparently. But I think there is something to that. When the time is right, there will be an outburst of this. And the current regime, I, I agree with Yaki 100% on this. It's in the past. It's a thing of the Victorian era, basically progressivism and liberalism and democracy the age of absolute politics a will to power that is what is coming and eventually it will erupt and i think it will erupt very quickly and aggressively like islam did because islam was bottled up as an expression of the Magian culture which was forced to go through what spingler calls a pseudomorphosis under the apollonian culture and pseudomorphosis is just a fancy word for saying it's 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 forced to LARP as something else. It's in a cast. So the Magian world feeling had to LARP as a as the Apollonian world feeling and therefore when it finally broke free it kind of frankly chimped out and went on its huge conquest. This isn't a different world feeling feeling we're still in the Facian world feeling, but it's a different phase. Where the age of absolute politics is made to conform to the age of capitalism and democracy. And there's a pseudo-morphosis in that way and eventually this will break out. And that happens, there will be rogue elites, we'll become more professional, and there will be someone who takes up the crown and becomes Kaisar. And one of the points I made in my recent article, it was about international affairs, was the thing about absolute power versus relative power, where you just need to have more relative quality or power than your opponent to run circles around them. So the bar is sometimes very low. For example, Putin, you know, Moscow's competition is DC. This is essentially two retards slapping each other. The The bar for being excellent is pretty low. Well, eventually it's the same thing here. The, the bar is very low because there's no competition. So eventually if someone can finally get some modicum equality, they'll be propelled to the Kaiser status very quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Dissident Echoes is written in with one U.S. dollar. Thank you again. Do you believe that Fuentes stroke Christian nationalism received outside funding to help fracture our movement? They derailed a lot of the discussion so that it's no longer about white interests. Well, honestly, I don't know. One could speculate about that. But my my feeling is that I, I've been around this a long time. I've been around this 25 years. And I've seen a lot of people do the Christian nationalism thing. This isn't anything new. And my feeling is that most of these people are sincere. And that uh, there's always a supply of people who are going to do this uh, sincerely. But yes, it, it is divisive. It is problematic. And if these people didn't pop up organically, it would be necessary for our enemies to create them. I do think that a lot of people who are just destructive influences on the movement, on the scene, are sincere cranks. And the worst of them are the most energetic ones. If somebody's a crank, you at least want them to be lazy, right? But the energetic, sincere cranks can do enormous damage. And I think they do this damage without being directed by any hostile forces. They're just egomaniacs. However, I do believe that our enemies watch these people and that if one of these people might be burning out or showing signs of quitting or something like that, I definitely think our enemies probably uh, give them a nice fat donation or something, or give them a little pep talk under the guise of being a big fan, right? To get them back in the ring and keep them up to no good. I I'm sure of that, Uh, that that just makes complete sense. That's what I would do with our enemies Uh, And I'm sure that our enemies do that with us. But just because something is conceivable doesn't mean that's evidence to believe that it's a fact. And there are alternative explanations here. And therefore, I, I think it's always irresponsible just because something is possible to then leap to the conclusion that it's real without further evidence. And so, yeah, I don't think that there's any reason to think that Nick Fuentes and the people around him are insincere and, and are doing this to be divisive, but it is divisive. And uh, I, I also do think that there is a, a, a certain cynical calculation on the part of people like Fuentes that makes them go for these divisive memes. Why? Well, because it's a way of fighting for followers and excluding certain people from your circles. If you're just ecumenically pro-white, well, there are a lot of people who are ecumenically pro-white and uh, you're just going to have to share a big audience with a lot of people. But what if you, what if you want to uh, create some drama, have some fights? What if you've got a beef against somebody like Richard Spencer, who is, you know, this village atheist sort of i guess he's an atheist he's a he's a kind of nietzschean i've heard him play patty cake with christianity in the past i don't know what he stands for but he's not a christian in any conventional sense and so what if you got a beef with him and you want to want to repel his followers well the the easiest way to repel pagans or nietzscheans is to is to say you're a christian just say christ is king And honest pagans and Nietzscheans will shrink back like vampires before the cross, right? So if you want to polarize the movement and create your own little sect within the movement, it's a sectarian move. I have a couple articles about sectarianism and the logic of that. You will look for some sectarian wedge issues that you will throw out there and you will harp on to basically divide yourself from others. And yeah, this is infighting. This is divisive, but there's a logic to this. The, they want this because what they're doing is they're farming clicks. They're farming super chats. They're farming followers. They're trying to create a group around them, a personality cult. These things don't happen by accident. Cults of personalities only happen because they're created and the people who create them have personality disorders. And it's that simple. So let's say that uh, somebody wants to create a little cult of personality. They want to farm uh, followers. They want to differentiate, differentiate themselves from the rest of the movement. They will hit on sectarian wedge issues. Now, Christian nationalism, though, was was a really brilliant move because it repulsed honest Pro white uh, Nietzscheans, honest pro white pagans, who did it not repulse? Didn't repulse Ali Alexander? Didn't repulse Milo Yiannopoulos? Didn't repulse I forget the guy's name? Some Jewish operator who, uh, uh, some Jewish swindler that was uh, working for um, Nick for a while.
1: And was in Doesn't charge rep- of the finances,
0: actually. Yeah, and yeah, they're always in charge of the finances, aren't they? Yeah. So uh, you know, it's it it's a it's a dumb move on his part. He did repulse lots of honest pro-white people, but he didn't repulse basically, well, he didn't repulse brown pedophiles and Jewish grifters and drama queens. That he didn't keep them out somehow. Uh but anyway, um uh, I mean that's part of the logic of it. There, there's There's a petty calculating logic of sectarianism that I think motivates this in the case of somebody like Fuentes. So it you don't really need somebody from the outside who's trying to destroy the movement to do this. But I do believe that, yes, if genuinely destructive people are suddenly on the ropes, that you will find they will find friends, big fans who will come forward. These are their system handlers, somebody tasked by the system to keep these destructive forces active and in the game. What are your thoughts, David?
1: So I'm not going to answer the underlying question. I'm going to avoid the call to question as we lawyers say, but I will say that, you know, going off what Yaki says about distortion, well, politics is about power and the pursuit of power. Anything that is not that weakens politics, distorts it, and eventually you, there will be very severe consequences. So re- Christian nationalism, is a, it has to be a distortion, either religion or politics. And sometimes the religion becomes politics and it simply drops all of this. And Yaki gives a lot of historical examples like Cromwell, I disavow Cromwell in the utmost. You know, that was an example of someone doing the whole religious nationalism thing, but doing it well because he dropped the religious stuff or like the 30 years war where you had Protestants and Catholics fighting each other, but then Protestants allying with Catholics to fight Catholics and vice versa. And eventually at that point, the religion isn't politics. I mean, the religion is no longer religion, it's politics. So you have to distort one or the other. One of them has to be distorted. The question is which one. And for most of of post-World War II history, it's been politics has been distorted after racial politics were defeated everyone jumped on the on religious thing as a very cheap substitute. Fuentes actually is trying to, to distort religion in, for the politics. He does this a lot, like all these strange associations. He associates with people who are Jewish, but then they get a free pass because they do this silly ritual. And so he's not intentionally distorting politics. However, he's doing the, the distortion of religion so clumsily that he ends up distorting both religion and politics. Religion is supposed to be the pursuit of truth and God and all that. He makes a fool out of that. And for, frankly, he seems to profane it. This is not truth. This is about power. And then while well, trying to pursue power this way, instead of you know politics should be up about power, nationalism should be about race, religion and race are not the same thing, even though they can oftentimes overlap, like Arabs and Islam, or Jews and Judaism. But... He dumbs it, does this so clumsily, unlike Cromwell, he, that he just ends up ma- distorting both politics and religion. And he should, re- I think people need to realize they can do both. You know, the Bible says you, don't, you can't serve two masters. It also says render unto Kaisar what is Kaisar. So you can do religious stuff at a religious thing, at church. Religion can influence politics. You can, but at some point when you do politics, you need to understand that you're doing politics and you keep them separate. And... That's not making a. I don't think that's even politics being stronger than religion. Is keeping the the keep keeping stuff where it belongs. Keeping the 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 pig in the barn and the porcelain in the kitchen. Right. They both have their place, and you're supposed to live in the road at some point. You're yeah. supposed to surrender unto Kaiser what is Kaiser, and trying to create this ultimate synth- synthesis of both religion and politics tends to backfire spectacular and make a fool out of both.
0: Yeah, it, there's this temptation. And I've again, I've been around for this movement for more than 25 years. I, I've been in rooms where most of the people are atheists or pagans. And and then suddenly they they, they think it's clever to put the one religious guy up in front to uh, lead the prayer over over the banquet. And they, I, I just want to shake them because there's. it's just in the bloodstream. It's in the DNA of anything on the right is to pander to Christianity, to pay play patty cake with Christianity, to um, not challenge Christianity, even though we're supposed to have separation of church and state and stuff like that. I, I find this very frustrating because – we simply can't have adult conversations about religion on the right, or we can't have adult conversations about what the real issues are on the right, because immediately people will try and wrench things in the direction of religion, even where religion doesn't belong. Uh, and people aren't comfortable pushing back against that. Uh, there's, there's just... There's a great deal of pandering that goes on, uh, a great deal of dishonesty, a great deal of posturing. Uh, and it's just very tiresome because, you know, and the other thing is there's a certain amount of pragmatism here, uh, a two, set, two kinds of pragmatism. Uh, there are people who think, OK, well, I don't want to talk about race because that's icky. Uh, so let's use Christian as a euphemism for white people, even though that doesn't make any sense historically or in terms of the global present. Uh, uh, People also think, well, I want to communicate with people and motivate people, and people are irrational and religious, so let's cast things in religious terms. And again, well, that's fine if you want to be sectarian, but I'm sorry. It it is, it is a self-limiting thing. You might intensify your power over a minority or a a small group of people who are susceptible to those kinds of appeals. And, and many Christians aren't. Uh, That's, that's the thing that, that gets me. Fuentes doesn't just talk about Christian nationalism. It's Catholic nationalism. He wants a Catholic theocracy in America the first people who are going to be at daggers with him about that and willing to shed blood, it's not somebody like me, it's, it's Protestants, right? Uh, and, and so uh, you know, that it, it doesn't even make sense because most Protestants don't want theocracy. They don't want a close alliance of church and state. Now, there are certain, some fundamentalists who probably do, but a lot of them don't. That's part of the DNA of Protestantism. So uh, I just think a lot of it's, uh, a lot of it's silly. It's, it's grasping after a form of power, but it's always a marginalizing form of grasping. It, it's always power uh, that's much smaller than what we need to have in order to win. And it, I think it stands in the way of winning. We have to find a way of appealing to all white people on white issues, and their are ways of doing that and being very motivational uh, without having to appeal to sectarian, you know, Christian differences—the sectarian Christian ideas that really do drive wedges between people, even between Christians. That's the other thing. The people who want to create a, a strong Christian alliance, well, okay, if they're really serious about their Christianity they're not going to ally with people across denominational divides, and especially across the divide between Protestant and and Catholic. If they're really serious about the religion, that won't work. And if they're so lukewarm about the religion that it will work, then why not just go with that lukewarmness and try and have an even bigger tent where you try and relate to all white people, and you set aside the religious differences entirely. That's the direction I want to go.
1: It's one of those things where it's a pinch of spice is good, but it can quickly uh, spoil the whole soup. And I don't mind Christianity in politics when it's more, it's, it's spice. I do want to encompass all of our people, that includes the Christians. The problem is that there is a segment of them who hijack the whole thing. And and there needs to be some type of limit where it's they maybe both have their own spheres and it just gets out of hand really quick. I think part of this is the American psyche of of extremism. That's and if you look at Europe, there are Christians in Europe, but they don't. They're, I, part of this is simply that Europeans are more professional than Americans, more mature. But it's not all encompassing. There's not like random parties in Europe that are like full on. 100 percent like christian nationalism like fuentes there's it's not because they're cucks either it's it's important there are plenty of sincere nationalists in europe who are christian but they they're pragmatic and they keep this they keep their 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 on the prize are simply more balanced people i think so i think kind of resolving this is that we need to deal with the fund the underlying issue which is that americans are all a little bit crazy due to genetic reasons, cultural reasons, and we just need to get more, go back to being Europeans.
0: Let's see if we have some more questions here, folks. Uh, We have about 10 more minutes, so let's get some more questions in. Okay, I have a question that's sort of out of left field here, and I'm gonna run with it. Uh, This is from Sunshine Kid, who sent a $3 super chat Uh, He's been wanting me to answer this question for a while, and I'm sorry I put this off and then I forgot about it. Do you believe Simone Weil's reading of Homer can be reconciled with that of Vico? Folks don't run. This is going to be really interesting. Um, I'll answer this very briefly. Um, Okay. Vico has this uh, discussion of Homer in the new science. And One of the things that Vico is trying to do in the new science is get away from the idea that primitive, in quote, society, uh, including early poetry and myth, uh, is, as he says, uh, as he puts it, just abstract, abstruse and recondite wisdom coded. In images. What does that mean? Uh, he wants to argue that the meaning of myth and the meaning of epic poetry is very concrete and that it is not an allegorical way of representing theories. Uh, the kind of theories, for instance, that Plato would have. Uh, and he's he's responding to the school of Neoplatonic allegorical readings of Homer and Hesiod that grew up in late antiquity. And what these people did is they would read Homer and they would say that this particular event in the Odyssey or the Iliad is actually an allegory for what Plotinus was talking about here. Right. And uh, that you can do that. And it's often very interesting Uh, There's no question about it. But Vico wanted to argue, no, that's not what they were up to. Our ancestors who dwelt nearer to the gods uh, did not think more abstractly. They actually thought in very concrete ways. And therefore, it's best to read uh, the these myths in, in very concrete ways and not to allegorize them and try and read in later more theoretical and advanced, in quotes, uh, forms of uh, thinking into them. I think it's a completely valid approach uh, to reading the past, to opening up the past. Uh, Vico argued that In the golden age, people were not plugged into cosmic wisdom, right? What was golden about the golden age was not its theories. It was not its insight into reality in the sense that somebody like traditionalists would talk about or Platonists would talk about. Instead, what was golden about the golden age was its vitality. Uh, And its vitality was very much caught up. Uh, in terms uh, with uh, a very imagistic and concrete way of thinking. And this is what gives rise to poetry and epic. Okay, that's Vico's view of Homer. I think it's a, it's a revolutionary and completely valid approach to Homer. Uh, and it sweeps away a lot of excesses of allegorizing Homer. Uh, it tries to get us back to what was really very, very powerful about early literature, myth and early literature. So what does Simone Weil say about uh, Homer? Well, she has a, a poem, or an essay, I should say, called The Iliad or The Poem of Force. And she talks about how the Iliad is really about seeing things through the eyes of your enemy, which is a foundation of sympathy, if you will, and mercy, and solidarity, and all these soft virtues. And this is very contrary to the kind of Robert E. Howard, Conan the Barbarian way that a lot of people want to read Homer. But she makes a very strong case for this. She argues that Homer, especially in the Iliad, is is about the horrors of war. The horrors of the objectification and destruction of human beings, which goes along with being unable to relate to them, to put yourself in their shoes, to sympathize with them, to feel what they're feeling. And I think there's a lot of uh, validity to that argument that, that she's making. Now, is this consistent or inconsistent with what Vico is saying? They're really just talking about different things entirely. Vico is would not say that Vile is engaged in some kind of allegorical reading of Homer. No, what she's simply trying to do is look at the surface of it and and look at the effect that it has on people who read it, and uh, and and, and her, she draws her conclusions from that. She's not saying that. This really means something completely different on a different level of reality. She's, she's really very much engaged with the actual text and the passions and the characters and trying to come up with a reading that emphasizes the education that you get from Homer in sympathy with other human beings. Now, what she does is she tries to li- uh, link this with Christianity. And Weil has this idea of a Helleno-Christian tradition. She wants to emphasize that Jesus was a Hellenizer Jew and that a lot of the things that are virtues for Christians are actually virtues for the pagans as well. This is completely contradictory to the kind of reading, uh, of course, that uh, Nietzsche gives to Christian and pagan ethics. And so it's a very, very challenging approach. And and I think there's a lot of validity to it, honestly. But it's not something that Vico would look at and say, this is an illegitimate, allegorizing approach. He might even find it very, very interesting. In this essay, The Iliad or The Poem of Force, she talks about how whenever anybody wants to justify something evil, they always cite the, the Old Testament, or the Romans. Whereas she believes that there's no such thing as a Judeo-Christian tradition and that what's revolutionary about Christianity is what it takes from Hellenic thought. And therefore she talks about a Helleno-Christian tradition, which I think is very interesting because it's it's a move that uh, is consistent with a pattern you can see from late antiquity on up to the 20th century when she wrote. There are certain Christian writers, and she was born Jewish, but she was Christian. There are certain Christian writers who, when they actually read the Old Testament, are so horrified by it. They recoil from it. And they try and find some way of erecting a firewall between Judaism and Christianity. One of the ways of doing this is through allegorical reading. This is what Origen does. This is what Swedenborg does more than a thousand years later. Others go so far as Marcion. Marcion said that the God of the Old Testament actually isn't God. He's basically the devil. He's the evil Demiurge, which is a character out of Plato's Timaeus. It's a a Gnostic idea of an evil creator of the material world. And says that the Jews are the, the people of the Demiurge. And that uh, the true God uh, is 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 not the God of the Jews. And that Jesus came to save us from the God of the Jews. Which basically is how a lot of Christians understand Jesus. They think Jesus came to save us from God. And all this Trinitarian stuff about him really being God. Well, everybody eye rolls at that eventually. So Weil is in that tradition of trying to uh, create a cordon sanitaire against Judaism within Christianity. And so she rejects this Judeo-Christian hyphenation, and she emphasizes how radically Hellenic Jesus is, which is another way of saying how European Jesus is, which is which is an interesting approach. And if some Christian nationalists were really serious about ideas, they, they might actually look into stuff like this. But I've seen no evidence that Nick Fuentes has ever read a book. Anyway, uh, so thank you for that. And I apologize for uh, forgetting about this for a while. Let's see if there are some new questions here. And uh, if not, we'll just wrap up. So I want to see if there are some questions on Odyssey or DLive. Anything new? Board Troll has donated one lemon. Thank you very much. Uh, And Diogenes has donated five u.s dollars there is a line in the movie geronimo not bad extremely anti-white what a surprise that applies to white nationalists there are so few of us left we should not hate each other greg watch q a race related league of gentlemen jack hawkins please what do you think of nietzsche's the antichrist well that's several things okay i'll look at geronimo league of gentlemen okay uh If it has Jack Hawkins in it, that's, that's interesting. Uh, What do I think of Nietzsche's the Antichrist? Well, I read Nietzsche's the Antichrist uh, when I was in my late teens. And I read that along with Twilight of the Idols and it was hugely uh, impressive. I, I do think that Nietzsche has, there's a lot of power to Nietzsche's critique of Christian values. But I do think that someone like Simone Weil uh, can make a, a very, very powerful counter argument, and uh, I, I think that that would that'd be a great topic for an essay or even a book, just to put these two thinkers in contradistinction and, and in dialogue with one another. I think that would be an absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating writing project. You know, it, it, it's easy to say, oh, wow, this is really cool when you're reading the stuff from the Genealogy of Morals or the Antichrist about the slave morality, right? But then you see him doing the same thing when he talks about Wagner, and you realize it's just all massive ad hominem psychologizing. And uh, in the end, it's not an argument. It's like a cool story. It's a cool story, Fred but it's not actually an argument. And even if you can show that Christian values arise in the most unimmaculate way possible, that doesn't mean they're false. There's a a brilliant essay by Leszek Kolakowski called Why We Need Kant. I think that's the title of it. Kant is in the title of it. I read this 30 years ago and it profoundly affected me. Why do we need Kant? And basically you could, you could reformulate it as why do we need, need slave morals? We need slave morals because in the modern world, we're all this far from being slaves. And we need a a moral standpoint from which we can push back against these encroaching forces that level us and, objectify us and dehumanize us. That's why we need that. And so the most ignoble motives might've been at work uh, in, in the creation of these uh, values, but they still might be true. And, and, ex- and exactly why should we not take the, uh, the, the perspective of people who are oppressed seriously? which is sort of an assumption that Nietzsche has, right? Honestly, I, I, think, uh, I think that you can say that Christianity, modern liberalism, ideas of human rights, etc. these are all of Kantianism, the idea that there's human dignity. All of this is slave morality. But you know what? Slavery is an ancient and ever-present threat. And in some ways it's a greater threat today than it was in the past. Uh and so I I don't think that uh we should be too eager to poo-poo these ideas. Well, David, let's let's have just a couple final thoughts about the Tucker Putin interview, then
1: sure. So
0: Yeah, go ahead. What are your final thoughts on it? So the
1: West about. the West absolutely hates not us, the less, but the current establishment in DC and all that—they absolutely hate history and tradition. Putin plays footsie with it, but not. Despite that, the huge historical lesson does not like quote Nazism, which is a shorthand for ardent, sincere nationalism. So the fact that the two, these two evil regimes, these two, the two most powerful regimes, even though that's relative power, they're both pretty incompetent. They're powerful because they're dealing with each other and with losers at home, at least in America. But these two things that these two titans, or at least relative titans, fear is nationalism, tradition, order, history, fanaticism. That means we maybe want to look into those things. That is apparently they're kryptonite.
0: Yeah, that's great. I, I, I agree with that. Uh, all this uh, All this anti-Nazi talk, Uh, all this anti-nationalist talk. Uh, Neither side supports uh, Ukraine for the right reasons or opposes Ukraine for the right reasons. Uh, we, We should be defending Ukraine because they're defending blood and soil nationalism there, and that's what we stand for. It's not happy talk about liberal democracy and stuff like that, which is what the, you know, the, the Biden government, the Biden regime is talking about. So my my final thoughts on this, I, like I said, I think that this interview was not good for the people who really like Putin on the right. And it was good for people like me who are critics of Putin on the right. Uh, I I don't think this is going to help uh, Putin at all in the West. Uh, in fact, I think it's going to harm him. I, I think it, he just comes off as alien and uh, out of touch, and and hard to relate to, and uh, that's that's not good for his cause. Uh, and so I'm I just think this was a huge wasted opportunity. Uh, I, I guess one question we could raise about this is: was this good for Tucker Carlson? Tucker Carlson spent a lot of social capital to do this. I think he did this because he thought that he was going to hear the kind of case straight from Putin's mouth that he was getting uh, from people like Douglas McGregor. And and basically this Kremlin fashioned Russia Today and uh, and other proxies propagated uh, story for the West, but he didn't get that. And I think he's got to be rather disappointed in this. Uh, he got a lot of fame out of this, uh, but he didn't get what he was fishing for. He got somewhat mistreated uh, by Putin, I think. Uh, and he's going to go back to the United States with a, a great deal of uh, new hostility uh, to him. Uh, I think that's unfair. I I think that he's a genuine you know genuine journalist he's a he's a good guy i kind of hope that he comes out of this uh, questioning his attitude that he had his pro putin attitudes going in uh, do you think that this really was a win or a loss for for tucker
1: i think it ended up being a win at the strategic level because he did if he he, he made managed to make both putin and the regime and the american regime look pretty bad basically by accident the hysteria about it going in has backfired because they've seen that this was not a propaganda thing tucker did not play softball Putin made fun of him there wasn't some buddy buddy thing this was not a propaganda thing and he also it, it does make them look this very stupid in comparison because they're being hysterical about something that was not there it's like another hoax the russian collusion hoax where well the Tucker's a, a Russian agent. That's just another hoax. It's anyone can see that's that is not false. There's not a working relationship here. In fact, they're opposed to each other to some level. And also, Tucker did at the very end did try to get a prisoner freed, and Putin just told him no. And I talked about this a little bit a little bit about this shows how Putin doesn't understand our culture. Where that would be. Taken a that would have been a that was a perfect propaganda moment and he blew it, but it, it did show that Tucker is trying to do the right thing, or what he thinks is the right thing. He expended capital, but it's going to backfire because it makes the regime look bad. So, in a way, this was a huge win because he managed to delegitimize the regime while not legit- legitimizing Putin. He's probably not very happy about, about it right now, but I think in the long term, he will be happy with how this turned out. He learned the truth that Putin does not like him, he's not an ally and the hysterics still made the regime look very stupid.
0: Yeah, I, I I can agree with that. Well, folks, we should wrap up. We have gone past two hours. We do not want to outstay our welcome. David, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, pox out there. I'm sure uh, you probably will hear this, uh, when we, uh, we broadcast it. So thank you again for, for joining us. This was great. I really appreciate you you gentlemen being able to write articles uh, about this that were thoughtful and you did it very, them, them both very quickly. I think this is important, uh, important news. And I, I think that we have some pretty solid takes on this. Uh, and, Next week, we will be back with another episode of Countercurrents Radio. I have not yet penciled in a guest, so if anybody wants to nominate guests, uh, please do so. Uh, the first Saturday of next month, we will have our countercurrents book club and we were going to have, and we are going to have, as a guest of honor, F. Roger Devlin will be talking about his book Sexual Utopia in Power. If you want to come to that armed with questions, uh, read the book and you can get that through countercurrents or, or find booksellers around the world. Uh, and please, please do, uh, please do prepare. I, I think the book club is a, is an excellent opportunity for you to get a real education uh, from the actual authors uh, themselves. So please join us for the book club and we will be back next week with another episode of countercurrents radio. Thank you.